What is good, everybody? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. Today, myself and Corey Hobbs are going to be talking about fat loss. Why fat loss? Because it's an important topic and it comes up quite a bit for both Corey and I in our practice. So we thought it'd be a great segue to talk about it and give some sort of context as how we approach it, what we're thinking about it. A lot of information on this subject. So the hope, it's not filling up the airways with something that's more confusing or more complex than it needs to be, but helpful. And the empathy component, the understanding that everyone has their journey and their steps along that journey start at different points. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But the biggest barrier to all this, and hopefully I take you take away this, is the psychological aspect of weight loss and body composition is by far and away the most important variable as a trainer, as a as a person looking to lose weight is to unpack, understand, and work through. If you guys like what you're listening to, or if these are helping, or if you're enjoying this in any way, please subscribe and leave a review. Helps a ton, makes all this more worth it. Appreciate everyone for listening. Let's talk about some fat loss. Okay, Tim, we're back. And this week, I want to talk about fat loss. One thing that drove my thought process was when we talked about that 10K steps, you mentioned looking in the notes, and you always see that the weight tend to, tends to come back on uh, for for a lot of people. So how do we get lasting fat loss and change that lasts? Yeah, let's talk. Let's open up with the story. So I'm presenting, come up with a nutrition plan. We invite a bunch of people, and one person's just fixed on this idea of set point, right? This predetermined aspect of you're going to be fat or skinny, right? That it's almost ordained, or you know this no matter what you do, you can't change this fact. Always the time. Which, yeah, yeah. Which, which though, like, I think there's some points to consider on this, right? There's body types, endomorph, ectomorph, and a mesomorph, right? So endomorph is larger obese type, and ectomorph would be skinny, and then mesomorph would be more prone to muscle mass or wide kind of like bodybuilder type, right? And then we can look at the other end of it, right? We can look at, that's, that's more general body type, we could actually throw in another component of Android, so more apple-shaped and, and gynoid, more pear-shaped, right? And we can start to do gender association, so females are going to be more gynoid, males are going to be more android. Then we could look at body types of, of different genealogies and looking at whatever your parents have handed down from a genetic standpoint. So there are some elements of body types and overall exposure over multi-generations to certain food groups and whatever it is from a survival standpoint, your body's conditioned to do. And then we look at modern conveniences of having omnipresent food or food constantly available and overly enjoyable hedonic food constantly available that we can associate that from a, from a survival standpoint an evolutionary standpoint, humans are always prone to finding high energy, highly, highly sweet or fat foods, right? The, the association of sweet is energy and the association with fat is caloric density, right? And that goes from, we might be able to accommodate periods of fasting, right? So we have a hardwired association with preference towards sweet or fat, right? And that's, that's a reality, right? These are real, real things. And when we look at it from the combination of at any point, you have the ability to get sweet and fat foods. The game's are salty from a, safe, a flavor standpoint, which accentuates the, the, the pleasure centers for enjoying these foods, right? But from the concept of 
looking at how that relates to body types, you know, you got the android, the agynoid. So if you are overly consuming foods that are sweet and fat and there's caloric surplus and there's going to be a high insulin release, meaning that's the response to raising your blood sugar, you're going to store more fat in that lower and upper quadrant, right? So if you look at android, more upper body, so above the waist and gynoid below the waist. And then if you look at the other end of it for this endo-ecto, the obese type for the endo and the the skinny type for the ecto, and we look at those two, the endo is going to have a higher higher potential to being obese than the ecto, right? Just the way they respond to foods in general. But the problem is, this isn't a given. And the issue is, if that's what you generally believe, that what's the point, why even bother in the first place? Why would you show to a nutrition lecture if you don't believe any of this is actually going to make a difference? Right? And what a crappy existence that you're not pretty much from an evolutionary standpoint going to be fat no matter what you do. Like, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. And it comes down to choices. It comes down to consistency. Sometimes it's going to be harder road for some than others. Right? We all know ectos that can eat whatever they want and don't seem to gain a pound. But we all know endos that bust their ass and have a great body composition and great self-confidence because of that. And it just comes down to we're all having to make compromises from our genetic standpoint, right? Like I'm five foot eight. I can't dunk a basketball. Does it mean that like I can't play basketball? No, it just means that I got to work harder than someone if I really want to commit to it. And now I don't think that's the, I think that's the perception that like, well, what's the point? You know, like I'll never be good at basketball. Like, well, I could be better and I can get better at things. But the other thing to think about here, this is important. So if we start to look at it from the, the raw simplest way to look at this is going to be energy intake, energy expenditure, right? So if you want to lose weight, that's pretty much the the equation, right? Eat less, expend more. That's it, right? That's simple on paper. The psychological aspect of this, that's the most important part. Because like as anything, we got to look at that. The longer you're in a state, the harder it is to break. So that set point that that person that wanted to like basically just poke holes in my logic of peri-workout nutrition and optimizing eating schedule and being aware of good foundational rules of lifestyle, health, and nutrition as a means to changing behavior, wasn't associating the quantifiable with the, the subjective psychological, right? That all I'm doing is creating loops and I'm building wins, right? And we can look at this from a motivational skill continuum or a quadrant. That if I look at someone with low motivation and low skill, meaning that they're not really excited to do anything and they don't really know what they're doing, then I got to start to build in foundational knowledge and give them some sort of momentum. But if they believe no matter what they do, that they are from an evolutionary standpoint, just going to be fat regardless, then they won't be willing to change. And I think therein lies the rub. It's still the same truth that you need to expend more and take in less. It just might mean more important that you do that for the person that's more endo or more have a higher prevalence to storing body fat, as well as it might mean that you have to do it longer and you might have less room or margin for error. Doesn't mean that you can't. And I think that's a part that I would look at from the stance of, hey, let's talk about 10,000 steps and let's talk about the rebound effect following any intervention, right? So someone walks 10,000 steps for a year, stopped walking and they gain weight. Well, they stopped energy expenditure. So what we're going to do to close the gap or help them transition off of doing 10,000 steps a day? Oh man, they were on a 
uh, restricted diet, right? We had a caloric deficit and they left this medical situation where they had complete control of food, whatever, whatever food they put in their body, right? The Great Starvation Experiment is a great book. It's Ansel Keys did medical research on post-World War II starvation scenarios like in Stalingrad that people basically starved to death. And how do we handle low rations and low availability of food for groups of people and getting them back up to a healthier state, not only from a caloric standpoint, from a micronutrient standpoint, right? Scurvy and rickets and all sorts of problems that happen when you are starving, not to mention the insanity associated with starving to death. There's a foundational knowledge of it's pretty simple formula. Just exercise more and eat less. Like that's the foundation of losing weight, which is a modern phenomenon. Never been a thing until the 21st, the 20th century that we needed to have weight loss programs and we need to have weight management programs. Like these are novel new things because food has never been that omnipresent and never been that widely available in terms of high fat and high sugar. But here's the reality is we're fighting not this notion of what's true or what's not. It's the psychological barriers of I have availability of this food and I have these loops that I constantly revert back to of I need to eat this because that gives me a sense of, of confidence or assuredness. And that's my, that's my pleasure center. And it creates another loop of this. Well, I can always use food as a means to cope. On the other end of it, though, it's, well, if I can't change this in three months, what's the point? Well, that's the nature of the beast here. You might need a year, might need multiple years. It might be the rest of your life. Right. And that's okay. Like, well, what if I have to give up these foods? Well, you're not going to die if you don't eat another chocolate cake again the rest of your life. I get that you like it. And there's a element that it might give you some short-term pleasure or some remnants of, hey, this is a family thing that every Sunday, like we would have a family dinner, we'd always finish with chocolate cake. And I create this nostalgia effect and this really, really warm sensation of like my family and connected to this and stuff. But it doesn't change the fact that if you don't change your lifestyle and habits and start to make some inroads to limiting that stuff or or maybe potentially controlling the intake of that stuff or the rate or the frequency of that stuff or just in general omitting it for a set period of time to have a better health, then you're not going to make any inroads. And that's the part that I think is often missed about weight loss. It's It's less physiology, it's more psychology. Right, so most people have a general idea of what they should be eating, like whole foods, get enough protein, veggies. Like, So I guess the best way we could go forward is how do we break those loops? Because that seems to be the biggest obstacle. So how do we do that? That seems tough, really. My addition, my my thought, it's always better addition than subtraction. Okay. You know, the, the component of let's add in high fiber foods. Let's add in more water. Let's add in more fruits and vegetables. Let's add in more protein. And the question will variably come of like, well, do I eat less carbohydrates? Because I heard if we omit carbohydrates, we can improve insulin sensitivity and we can produce more ketones. And that might be better for cognitive function as well as more like polysis or fat burning. Absolutely true. But right now, if I'm looking at your diet and it's poor all around and you're very poor in terms of compliance and the adherence to something, removing a food group that is 90% of your, of your day and all the associations with that from the convenience factor, like carbs are going to be everywhere or the, the rounding out a meal, right? Like I'm never going to have a, just a meat. I'm going to have a meat with some sort of bread or meat with some sort of pasta. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things attached to just that food group. And 
what I find is most successful. Because again, you said it, like it's pretty intuitive what's good and bad, right? And there's there's a challenge on intuition, but you know, it, you know the the such and such is is BS. Like, I I, I got to be honest. I think now for whatever reason, common sense and logic is at its greatest greatest point of stress and peril. Like most people are really struggling to accommodate common sense and logic. And all I would do, and if you really want to go deep on this, if you ever want to really question the, the logic of omitting a certain food group or any kind of thing like fruits and vegetables or proteins or anything, look at your teeth. We have incisors or like canine like, like things to break down animal flesh. We have molars to break down fiber. That's fact. We haven't changed that in thousands of years. You look in your digestive system. You know, we have our stomach, which is filled with hydrochloric acid that breaks down proteins into peptides and amino acids to absorb. We have bile from our gallbladder to break down fat and, and emulsify that so we can digest that into or break that down to fatty acids and absorb that. And then we have bacteria within our small and large intestine to break down fiber. And and then we actually have other amylases to break down starches and carbohydrates. Our digestive system and our ability to break down these food substrates from the emulsification process or creating a mastification of breaking down that food into from chewing is the easiest argument to anyone who says you should emit fruits and vegetables or you should emit animal proteins or you should emit anything. It's never been the subtraction. It never has. And that never works long-term because you live in a modern world where this is always widely available and you're going to eventually have to meet the, the conversation and your willingness to fight that is really hard to maintain, right? The, I don't eat vegetables because, you know, like I'm carnivore. I don't eat animal proteins because I'm vegetarian. Like those are situationally dependent things. Like I guarantee every single one of those carnivore diets are doing a big interview with a Fortune 500 CEO company that's a chance to make a million dollars. And he's like, I'm ordering a steak. What are you getting? Will you will a steak and vegetables? They're going to eat vegetables. And vice versa for the vegan. So what I would say in that situation, it's not the omission of something. It's the addition of things that are going to bring you net positive, right? So instead of saying, hey, I got to get rid of the, I can throw the baby out in the bathwater, start getting rid of everything. Because that's easy logic, right? I can reduce food, but it doesn't work with a modern world. But if I add, tell you to add more fiber, well, what does that mean? You talk me through that. What does that mean to you? Well, I heard gluten's bad for you. So maybe that doesn't come from pastas and breads. Okay. What are, their, what are their options of fiber you can get? Well, fruits and vegetables. Okay. There's one. I don't really eat fruits and vegetables because I'm carnivore diet. Okay. Well, maybe you need to do a fiber supplement. Okay. Well, there's that, right? That That's fine. I'm not going to tell you not to, but I'm going to tell you, you need to figure out how to get 40 to 50 grams of fiber a day. Because that's right. been shown from a cardiology standpoint, long-term taking in of fiber shows to live people, allow people to live longer and have less risk for cardiovascular disease or metabolic syndrome. Okay. Those are the downsides of being overweight, by the way. Okay. Animal proteins. All right. Well, you know, people who eat more animal protein typically eat less because there's a higher thermic effect of feeding. There's a higher satiating effect. So your body raises the temperature and has to has to go through more non-energy exercise expenditure to break down these animal proteins, as well as the thermic effect. Your body gets warmer when it eats animal proteins. So it becomes more metabolic, right? And there's a whole thing associated with that. But then there's also the other element, the satiating effect. 
that your body has to work hard. Blood rushes to the stomach when it starts to get filled with hydrochloric acid and breaking down these proteins into peptides and amino acids for absorbability. And that makes you feel fuller. Not only that, you have to chew it. And chewing is probably one of the most foundational things from jaw health and strength, as well as breaking down food and slowing down the food intake. Usually there's a hormone called ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. And the counter of that to be the satiety hormone, leptin. They don't really kick in if you're eating fast and you're just swallowing food and foods that are just being absorbed by just opening your mouth and just letting it go through your digestive system. When you have to chew and break down foods and you have to work to eat it, high fiber, high animal proteins, typically you start to get fuller faster and you eat less and your digestive system works better and your whole functioning operating systems work better. And you're talking about someone who's trying to reverse tread on momentum of being overweight and fighting that step point. Well, now you can reverse that by just simply feeding foods that are harder to break down from a chewing standpoint and from a digestive standpoint. And that is centered off of high fiber, high protein rich foods. But nowhere in that I said you should eliminate something or you should get rid of this. And if you choose to eliminate it, your life is that much harder. It yeah. is that much harder. You have to find micronutrients and you have to find macronutrients that accommodate and fill these gaps that you need to get no matter what. Like there's no way around it. And when you live in a modern society where you have to eventually make concessions, does that just completely derail you? It's better to have an adaptable, flexible approach by adding in things as opposed to omitting things. So you mentioned fiber and protein. Probably it sounds like those would be the first two things you add. So let's mm -hmm. let's say I came to you. Okay, boom, I'm on board. I'm getting a gram per pound of protein. I'm getting my 30 or 40 to 50 grams of fiber. What am I adding next? Water. Water? Yeah, that's it, right? You know, yeah. the... The, the simplest thing I could tell you to do is probably drinking water. Mm -hmm. uh, that component is invaluable, right? The, just we're electrical conductors, right? So if you want your metabolism to improve, have better conductivity, right? The, the utilization of, of fuel substrates and immune and lymph and circulation and everything that's associated with it, like it's all predicated off your, your fluid levels. Your body's just a water bag. That's all it really is. And when that water bag is depleted, even by 0.1%, you're less efficient and less optimized. But the other side of it too is the satiating effect, the response to foods. You know, a lot of times we think we're hungry. We might be just actually thirsty or dehydrated. A lot of times that we don't feel full or satiated is because we didn't drink enough fluids right? That the, the body needs that. But also too, the mastification process of chewing and breaking down foods. It goes down easier when we drink more water, right? So fiber, protein, central pieces. But I would argue probably water should be even ahead of those two because okay. of the simple fact that your body is 98% water and that's probably the foundational piece of life amongst with sunlight, which goes into this conversation of how are you anchoring your day, right? What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Usually it's like, hey, I've checked my cell phone. That's natural. Everyone does. And I'll be lying if I didn't either. Right. I spent 10 minutes. I set my alarm for 5 a.m. this morning. I looked at my phone for 10 minutes for no reason. Why not just set my alarm for 510 and just get up? Who knows? I don't know. No one does. We're all human. But I would right. say, what do I do after that? Do I get water? Do I just keep looking at my phone? And what's the second order off of that? If I need to get half my body weight in ounces of water a day and I start at, let's say, 11 o'clock, What's my chances of reaching that target? And then what's my chances of doing really good things outside of that? And it's all feedback loops, right? So, you know, I always tell people like the, 
the one of the best studies I've ever read was multivitamin people take multivitamins live longer. All right. And you could associate that with getting more micronutrients and being more being giving all the available cofactors and factors that are associated with metabolism and health, etc. The other part is usually people who take multivitamins are more conscious about their health, more conscious about what they eat, more conscious about exercise, more conscious about managing the stress. And is it chicken or the egg? Who gives a shit? Right. Take the multi. It's been shown to make you live longer and have a better, happier, healthier life. What's so who, who cares about the logic behind it? And the same thing with water. Like, tell me one person that drinks water daily at a high enough level that actually is benefit to them that you don't think is have their shit in order. Like, that's the part that is really foundational to me. Like, it's just copying success. It's being aware of like, okay, typically people who are better body comp drink more water. You know, the, the aggressive form of this is the bodybuilder archetype walking around with a gallon jug. And I'm not saying they're the pinnacle of health, but from a body compositional standpoint, they're creating decisions to get to a sub 5% body composition with a certain amount of lean muscle mass that's congruent with their habits and lifestyles. And you don't need to take that extreme archetype to make better decisions about water. You know, how are you creating loops? And if you're drinking eight, 12 ounces of water first thing in the morning, what are the decisions after that? Probably better. What's going to be the decision for breakfast? Is it, oh, I'm going to get a scone or a pastry? Or is it, oh, I'm going to get some protein in and get some vegetables in and make sure that I start my day correctly? I bet on the latter saying that if you drink more water, you're probably going to make better decisions. Right? And it's the idea of like, okay, I'm going to get a glass of water before every meal. Okay. Great. Or, hey, I'm going to eat eight servings of vegetables. Or then I'm going to get two servings of vegetables. And then I'm going to make whatever decision after. And it's like, that's my point of everything I do with a client or an athlete of who's trying to lose weight or improve their body comp. It's putting them in a position where they have to really think about the next decision and creating triggers to initiate that decision tree, right? The, I go out to eat. I'm with my boss or my loved one. I just had a crappy day. I have decisions to make, right? Like we're all in those situations constantly, all the time. And when we get to that point, what is going to be the trigger to make the decision? It's, I don't have a plan. I'm going to rely on my natural reptilian brain to go choose foods that are going to be really, really energy surplus, high fat, high sugar, or I'm going to drink a glass of water, take a second. What's my goals? I want to lose weight, have better body comp. I'm going to look at the animal protein vegetable option and then maybe throwing in a, a starch or a carbohydrate to accommodate that. Maybe they have the calories on there and I'm starting looking through the calories a little bit more in depth. Like, well, you know, I'm going shepherd's pie, which is 2000 calories at uh, Cheesecake Factory. Or I'm going to get this other thing with salad with a much less calorie count, higher fiber, higher amount of protein per actual gram of, of weight or calorie density. I'm going to go ahead and say that that chance of being successful down the road is better. And these are all the triggers that I think most people have intuition and logic there. They just need to be encouraged and motivated to do it. So water, from the health perspective, I, that's obvious. But from the psychological trigger camp effect of the decision trees that we make after that and what that influences from the rest of the day and starting it from thing one, like objective one is getting water and then building out from there. Like if you see it, it's just packaged differently. The gurus out there are all kind of saying the same thing. Like if I see another thing about hydrogenized water, like I'm, I think it's hysterical. It's a, it's a joke for anyone who doesn't really know. But either way, it, it there's nothing actually supporting that evidence to say that hydrogenized water is actually more net beneficial than good filtered water. It's the um, removal of me heavy metals and things like fluoride that's probably the bigger actual limiting factor or the better, uh, sorry, the bigger impact. 
But let's just say like, hey, getting water in and packaging in a sexy format of alkalized or hydrogenized or whatever other thing out there that people are, are buying into, like just drink water. <laughs> you know, like hopefully it's filtered, but drink it, you know, drink it in a, a, a non-BPA bottle or like try to reduce your carbon footprint by not having plastic bottles everywhere. Fill up your water with filtered water in your fridge or get a really nice filter. But either way, drink more water and chances are your decisions are going to be way better. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So we're drinking water. B big thing is like thinking, having a plan, understanding that it's going to take a significant amount of time. But knowing that it's going to take a significant amount of time, how soon do you think we should plan to start seeing some results? Effort and intensity, right? Timelines matter, right? So if you came to me and said, hey, I want to lose 40 pounds in three weeks, nothing's impossible. I wouldn't recommend it, but it's going to take a great effort, like a Herculean effort. And your start point makes a big difference as well there too. So if you're 40% body fat and you're 400 pounds, Losing 40, 40 pounds is 10% of your body mass. If you're 200 pounds and you want to get down to 160, now we're taking a number from 10% upwards to, what's the math on that, 25%? 20%? 20%. That's a substantial, right? We're, like the, the joke is you're taking a chair and throwing it off the Titanic as opposed to splitting the Titanic in half. You know, like that's the... That's what we're trying to create an image of like, we're just cutting the Titanic in half or we're getting rid of a chair. Like it's easy to discard a chair. It's hard to cut this thing in half. So when we're thinking about, hey, when should you start being results? I think the bigger thing to think about is you should be seeing results. And I think sometimes it gets missed. We lose sight of the trees through the woods, the kind of concept here of well, you made all these inroads. You have this big elaborate plan. You know, I just read a really interesting quote from Eisenhower of planning is more important than the plan. I think that's a great quote, but I think we lose sight of we can get overly consumed with the planning, right? The plan needs to go into effect and we need to have something to result from that plan, right? And we need feedback loops to give us an insight if we're making progress or not, because humans need the validation to say that what they're doing is working. I just told you to eat less exercise more, increase your fiber, increase your protein, increase your water. Great. That's awesome. Sweet. I get it. Makes sense. It's intuitive. Your logic makes sense. You do that for a week, see no tangible difference. Chances of you complying after that week goes down exponentially. It has to manifest into something in terms of weekly tangible progress. And what I always say to everyone who wants to lose weight or gain weight, it doesn't really matter either way, is I don't know you. I'm going to start in the middle and then I'm going to tease up or down based off how you respond to this middle, middle plan, right? So drink more water, eat more protein, eat more fiber is a pretty much the start point for everyone. Hey, Corey, great to meet you. You want to lose 20 pounds in the next three months. We can do it. I just need to start here and then figure out from there. That didn't work week one. Okay. We need to maybe increase our fiber or decrease our calories, or maybe we need to expend more energy because you have a lot of nervous energy and you want to move a lot. You're anxious. If you're not doing cardio every day, you start to get pretty stale or you start to get pretty excitable. Okay, well, I'm going to feed that. I'm going to scratch that itch and allow you to do that. I'm hopefully going to find modes and methods that are going to allow you to do that without breaking down. Not constantly stimulating that. And then we'll do that until we figure out that doesn't work anymore. And then we'll start to toggle down calories. And then come from a psychological trick of, okay, eat more fiber, eat more protein, 
maybe start to reduce other things and start to eliminate that. Like, hey, at breakfast, just don't have cereal with it or don't have oatmeal with that. Like, just get rid of it. Just go with the three egg whites and one whole egg and then some vegetables. Oh man, I just really like my oatmeal. Okay, then I'll do another meal. Like, okay, at lunch, can you just eat a salad? I really like my uh, my sandwich and my my fake lace. Like, okay, at dinner, can you just remove the carb or can you remove the starch, the rice? Probably, that's where we're going. Right, I just boom. removed two, 300 calories there, right? Mm-hmm. And these are all the things I think that the problem, like most practitioners don't, they know what to do. We all do. The client knows what to do. They all do. It's just finding that middle ground of where can you can be compliant over a longer period of time. And I, when I got the type A, really elite, high motivation, high skill person, it's, and I do this still, I can coach hat on, get my Fox 40 whistle on, like, you know why you're doing this, just do it. Stop complaining, do it. Like, that's the difference of, like, I can wear that hat just as well as, like, where are you at today? How you doing? Okay, let's get back on the horse tomorrow. Where can we find middle road here? Where we can find middle ground? Let's keep moving forward. But to your original question of when can we start seeing results, you should see it immediately until you don't, and then you start to make changes. Is you don't abandon the plan, the planning was right. The plan is where we actually need to actually see the tangible changes. And that plan demands as we go. And right. we start to see changes based off our willingness to adapt that plan to how your body's going. Because that set point is changing with you. And it wants to revert back to original. So whatever homeostasis you've been at longer or your natural order, it's going to try to revert back to that as much as that. So it's, I'm pulling forward, I'm pulling forward, and that thing's pulling me back. You have to fight that by, okay, now I'm going to recourse and get that thing off balance and keep pulling in another direction. And that's what we're constantly doing. We have this tug of war with your homeostatics at that point. They're really strong. I mean, there's, it's Magnus Magnuson over there and he's pulling with all of his might and you're trying to pull away and there's a lot of momentum and you're actually going uphill. He's downhill. You got to fight it. And then I'm going to find a little inroad and ditch over here where I can go down for a second and get some leverage. And then that turns into a hill. So now I got to find another hill or I slipped, my foot gave out. Okay. I'm going to get back. I'm going to dig my foot in again. I'm going to go again, again. It's finding ways to get constant, steady progress by having really good planning, but adjusting that plan to meet that road. And if you don't know who Magnus Magnuson is, is the world's strongest man. And he was really good. And probably most people are going to lose to him in tug of war. Right. Yeah. So a little world's strongest man history there too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not hopeless is what you're saying. It's just going to be harder for some people. Yeah. But even being able to acknowledge that, like, Hey, it's going to be harder for you for these reasons. Like you have to be able to acknowledge that as a client or someone who's going to take on this challenge as well. Otherwise then, then you really do run into that hopeless situation. If you're not willing to recognize that. Yeah. And as a practitioner, you have a responsibility to, to meet them where they're at. Empathy is an underrated attribute, you know? And one of the things I feel like, it's ridiculous TV, but like Biggest Loser or, you know, the role reversal of like a trainer gaining a ton of weight and then trying to lose the weight. Like the message is always like, I forgot how hard this is. And I forgot how much inertia is created towards staying overweight. I mean, it's awful on your body's physiology and the fact they're willing to sacrifice their health. Like I'm definitely not gaining a hundred pounds for the sake of developing empathy. I'd rather just have it. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I know it makes for great TV, but good Lord. But the other end of it, it's, you know, we have these examples all around us. And you know, one of the, if you're a trainer out there, listen to this, you all know this. 
your parents, your loved ones, your spouses, your friends, they're the least likely to listen to you. And they know how smart you are and they know how talented you are. My, I'll tell you, my wife probably doesn't want to take any advice from me because she's also the guy, I'm also the guy that forgets to take out the trash. Or I'm also the guy that mm-hmm. is incompetent in so many areas and the for losing sight of the fact that I'm an expert in something becomes harder to rationalize. No matter how much people say I'm smart or I'm good at what I do, it's still associated with the things that I'm not as good at that she sees on a much more recurring basis. But that's your challenge. That's if you're going to walk away from this episode and your practitioner is, can you get your father to go on more walks and eat less food? If you can't do that, you start there and you start to figure out how do you chip away at this and how do you get small wins? And I'll tell you what I do with my father. I buy him multis and say, can you just take this every day? And then I start to go, hey, can you drink some more water instead of Diet Coke? Hey, can I get you going for a walk today? We've had good and bad weeks. And he knows what he needs to do. He's smart. He's capable. He just doesn't want to do it. Or he doesn't have the motivation to do it. Or he doesn't care. I'm like, well, we've got two young kids over here that I think it really matters that you're around for a long time. So you can have a relationship with them. And they get to know you. And they can be there with you. So I tie into different motivational tactics. But the point being is when you're looking at a trainer and you're talking to them. And like, oh, man, you're like, I got this foolproof plan, testimonials. And you know, blah, 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 just starve them to death and exercise them to death and they get shredded. There's no like after, right? There's no like, what's the follow through? What's a year follow through on that? What happens next? I, yeah. I like to get into, what do you do with your spouse? Like, do they work out? Like, do you find ways to motivate them or can you get them to like be healthier? What do you do with your parents? You know, like, how do you get them to exercise? Like, that's always my like default, like what I want to pry a little bit. When I find super testimonial people, like, you can get people that are paying you an ungodly amount of money to help them lose weight because they're captive audience and they're really motivated for that period of time. It's the, the ones that are more familiar with you. Like that's the one I really kind of want to find out. And as a potential patron of some of these, it's okay to have a really carpentalized goal and, and understanding that you're going to lock in and super motivating. Like you should definitely do that. Like, I'm not trying to diminish that value, but I'm telling you there's a long effect that you need to appreciate as well. That life after that needs to be as important as the time period. That might be that, that shock to the system that you need to help initiate change. But then what? What's the long-term thing? You know, what's your ability to do that? And the same thing with working with sports. Like, I was, was your college strength coach. I have a moral responsibility to not beat the shit out of you so you don't walk up, wake up at 40 going, I can't get out of bed. Like, I'm just going to pummel you with back squats and deadlifts and saying your spine is irrelevant to me. Like, I have a responsibility to think long-term here. Same thing with weight gain. Like, how many offensive linemen I was helping getting from 240 to 300 and knowing the metabolic expense of that for the short-term sacrifice to be able to play varsity football at Division one level is going to be there. So the conversation is like, hey, just as much as I'm building you, i got to figure out how to reverse this. <clears throat> And giving them smart habits, like it's just surplus and the opposite is deficit. And we've got to go into expenditure. We're minimizing energy expenditure and focus on an anaerobic muscle building things for the short term. But long term, it's going to reverse trend and we're going to go to a deficit and go more oxidative. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a perfect place to wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that, that, that was smooth. All right, everybody. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you, Tim. This is great.